Hi, everyone. Uh, we're just going to get started showing a very quick video, and then I'll introduce our panelists. Standards show the way to sustainability. They help us avoid practices and products that harm people and the planet. But how do we know they are really having an impact? The true test of a standard is whether it actually promotes sustainability. A good sustainability standard betters the environment and society because of the positive changes it promotes and the peer practices it prevents. But a standard has to be widely adopted, as if no one uses it, it won't have much of an impact. Likewise, a standard may be used by many, but if it makes little difference on the ground, it won't help achieve sustainability either. So when it comes to impacts, performance has to be measured. Credible standards have monitoring and evaluation systems that provide information about effectiveness. Does it lead to the desired impact? Accessibility. Are small producers able to use the standard? And relevance. Does it address key environmental or social challenges? This information empowers the people behind the standard to know what's working and why. It also helps them to improve their standard over time. Monitoring systems start with a clear statement about the sustainability objectives of the standard so that stakeholders know what to expect. They collect information systematically and track indicators to see if those objectives are being met. They also need to include deeper evaluations to know if the standard itself is responsible for the changes observed. This is the only way to draw robust conclusions about the impacts of the standard. Credible standards should also be transparent. Once the results are known, the findings need to be shared with all stakeholders. This also helps to ensure that claims and communications are accurate. Accurately measuring and evaluating performance is difficult. It takes time and commitment. Ultimately, it's about our planet and society. Effective, impactful standards are a tool for making things better for all of us and for future generations. For more information on the ICL Impacts Code or on how to work with credible sustainability standards, visit ICL.org today. to show this before we introduce our panel because it's a video that was made late last year uh, by my organization to share with people working in the certification and standards movement and those who use certification and standards the work that many of the leading certification schemes are doing right now to really, really focus on demonstrating their impacts. Uh, in order to scale up those impacts and drive drive uptake. So I, um, I welcome you all to coming today. My name is Lara Karitsky. I'm the Director of Communications and Development at ICEAL, which is the Global Membership Association for Sustainability Standards Certification. And we have with us today four certification experts uh, from some of the leading certification systems that you know. So um, I'm going to introduce them, pose them a, a sort of general overarching question. They're going to give some opening remarks, a little bit of a, an introductory presentation for a few minutes, and then we'll talk to them with some questions from myself and you about specifically what they're doing around impacts measurement or communication of impacts in the certification field. So first we have Carrie Coughlin, who is the Regional Director for the Americas for the Marine Stewardship Council joining us. And then Jessica Grillo, who many of you heard this morning in the plenaries. She's the Chief Livelihoods Analyst in the Evaluation, uh, Evaluation and Research Division of Rainforest Alliance. And then we have Mary Jo Cook, who is from Fairtrade USA, the, the Chief Impact Officer for Fairtrade USA. And finally, we have Etienne McManus-White, who is the Chief Marketing Officer for Forest Stewardship Council US. So I am thrilled to have them all here. We have um, representing uh, fishing, forests, agriculture, tourism, um, and decades of experience here on the panel. And we have, I think, the only all-NGO panel today. So we realize we... 
you know, we, we have our work cut out for us with uh, a, a lot of uh, folks out there. But um, we are talking today about the challenge of going mainstream, going beyond the 10, 15, 20% that we've reached in cocoa tea, forest, fish, etc. And, and as someone said this morning, moving from measuring the easy things... And I entered the certification world 15 years ago, and we were just measuring number of farms, number of hectares, number of workers a little bit. And now we need to measure the hard things. What are the actual impacts that we're having? So I'm going to turn it over to the panel for their opening remarks or presentations. Um, I've asked them to, to frame their opening presentation around a question I posed to them, which is, what to them are some of the biggest things they have learned as an organization in their recent work to measure or communicate impacts um, so as to mainstream or scale uptake. And when we talk about mainstreaming certification to extend the reach of these systems, to extend uh, and scale up these systems, for us, we believe in the tool of sustainability standards and certification. As the video said, we believe it shows the way to sustainability. And so all of this is not just to have more frogs and little blue fish on products, but to uh, scale up the sustainability impacts that is uh, behind those labels. Um, so I've asked them to answer those questions, and I've also asked them to, to keep to about four to five minutes each so that we have lots of time for questions. So first we'll uh, have Carrie from MSC. Thank you, Laura. Um, and we're not an NGO, by the way. I hate to break the trend, but <laughs> uh, MSC is not considered a, an NGO. Great. Um, thank you. Um, I did put together some slides and too many for a 45-minute intro, but I did that because if you want it later, you can have it. But I'm going to go through it frustratingly quickly so that we don't take up uh, a lot of time on, on what MSC is. But it gives you an introduction to where I'm coming from, and it also, I hope, gives you a good overview of what a third-party certification is and what a third-party certification does. Um, so first of all, uh, with fish, um, it's really a critical, critical food source. It's the largest traded food commodity in the world. You can see that billions of people now rely on it. Um, so as Laura said, this is not just about having eco labels on product, which is an important part of the system, um, but it is about having an environmental impact, in our case, on preservation of fish stocks. It's uh, very much in the case of wild harvest seafood. Um, a food security issue, and it's an economic livelihood issue with half a billion people depending on it uh, for their jobs. So these are the three areas that we really focus on uh, when it comes to impact. So any certification program obviously has a very similar theory of change. Um, you're harnessing market forces in order to bring about environmental change. When I say we're not an NGO, it's because we are by design, representative of all of the sectors, NGOs, industry, governments, um, and very, very balanced um, scientific community uh, so that as a certification program, we cannot become special interest. We don't develop agendas of our own. Our science reflects global consensus on minimum sustainability and best practice. And that's what our metrics are built around. And these are the things that we're actually trying to affect through this but as this kind of a platform and service organization, we are able to bring together all of those sectors to have that impact. So we have two standards. Uh, it's very important if you do a certification not to do it at the farm or the fish level and say, there, you are sustainable, that's great, here's your certificate. What happens when it leaves you? You have to have a traceability component. The product is going to bear some kind of certification acknowledgement of you as brands and companies, and I'll just assume I'm speaking to a lot of branch and companies, you're going to want to know, have that trace all the way through the supply chain. So when you present it to one of your customers and say it's certified sustainable, you can trace it back. You know that. You have that ability to do that. Very, very important. And again, I mentioned diverse government, broad consultation. Uh, certifications have to be able to screen away from ex more extreme agendas, special interests, groups, one way or the other. Uh, in our case, we look uh, at the impact on the stock of that commercial fishing, the ecosystem impact, and is there effective management to monitor and set appropriate catch levels and keep that fishery sustainable. Uh, MSC 
university, unlike some of my colleagues here, have, has made a conscious decision not to get into social standards, um, to get into um, greenhouse gases, carbon emissions, that sort of thing, uh, within the definition of our sustainability framework. That will differ from certification to certification. Um, the important thing on this slide, 31 individual scientific indicators. That's what you want to see, um, something very robust. Uh, so in our fishery assessment, again, I'm not going to go through all of these, but the important thing uh, to say here is there's a very, very structured process, and it's done with independent, accredited, third-party certifiers as the standard setter. We do not do it, and that's an appropriate um, structure for a program. Um, and I, we're going to get into metrics later, maybe to talk more about this, but in our program, we basically do a 1 to 100 scale. Any score below 60, a fishery cannot pass. Um, each of those three principles I mentioned have to aggregate to 80, and anywhere in there that there's a score, even if they pass, that there's a score between 60 and 80, there will generally be an improvement action over the five-year life of the certificate that fishery will have to improve and go from what we call minimum sustainability at 60 to best practice. So there's improvement when fisheries prepare to get assessed, and then there's continued improvement uh, after they do. Uh, this is just growth of the program. Um, and this is really when you talk about what are some of the benefits to the fisheries, why would they do it? I mean, as one, one fishery uh, company told me, look, Walmart told me to them, and they say, do my job. It's just that easy. I'll do what they want. Uh, but there are, it's much more complex than that, and it's not always about that. Um, there are lots of benefits for fisheries, and you need to have benefits because we're a voluntary program, and the fishery will pay the time and expenses of the certifier. Uh, we're not engaged in that transaction. Um, so these are some of the benefits. Um, and here are some of the benefits on the uh, chain of custody side. Um, you have to have chain of custody auditing, again, all through the system, and we can talk about those metrics. It's not unlike uh, a food safety. Uh, it's basically how do you track inventory in, inventory out, to make sure there's been no substitution, no commingling uh, of certified fish. There are about 20,000 product lines now uh, that carry the MSC eco-label. Um, and what are the benefits for companies? These are companies uh, that use us, Sodexo, Walmart. Um, I'll show you slide with some more. And again, these are some of the benefits. If a good certification program is the underpinning of the um, CSR policy for a company that's trading in seafood. Um, and we're seeing now investment ratings are going up and down on whether a company that trades in seafood is MSC certified or not. Uh, it becomes very, very important through all of these issues. Uh, just some examples of just some of the companies who work with thousands of companies around the world. These are a few examples. Uh, one of the more prominent ones was uh, McDonald's announced uh, earlier this year that they were going from 100% MSC for their filet of fish, um, which resulted in tremendous positive coverage for them. It was the first time they'd done any eco-labeling. They had a lot of trepidation, and they're very, very pleased uh, with the outcome of that. That was the number one story on the album the day it was announced, and that's a hard slot to get, especially when it comes to fish. So, um, clear messaging. Companies, it's very difficult to communicate things like this with customers. How do you do, A, do the work to make sure you're sourcing sustainably when you're getting fish from Thailand and New Zealand and Alaska and Norway and you know, all over? MSC makes it easy, and it makes it very easy to communicate uh, to your buyers and consumers. Um, so we're going to talk about some of these sustainability metrics um, and understand that metrics are there to provide value, not burden the system, but to provide the meat that you really need um, and you need good, clear metrics. So these are some of the discussion questions um, that I think we're going to discuss when I stop talking and you learn who others are up here and learn about their programs. Um, and I look forward to... Um, a more lively and engaged discussion. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Thank you, Carrie. And next we have Jessica from Rainforest Alliance. Hello. Um, I probably have too few slides. <laughs> so you'll see two and you'll hear me talking. Um, so Rainforest Alliance, just to give you a brief overview of Rainforest Alliance, uh, we are a nonprofit organization, and we're focused on improving sustainability practices in three different sectors. Um, so it's agriculture, forestry, and tourism. And we provide technical assistance in each of these sectors 
uh, with the ultimate aim of conserving or contributing to the conservation of biodiversity and improving livelihoods. And so in agriculture, we work directly with the farmers and we certify, um, we work directly with the farmers to provide uh, technical assistance on standards um, in the sustainable agriculture networks, the the sustainable agriculture network standards. Uh, Sustainable agriculture network is uh, associated with Rainforest Alliance, but it is a somewhat separate entity. And when farmers uh, comply with a certain percentage of those standards and all of the critical criteria, they receive certification that is the the Rainforest Alliance um, SAN seal, so frog. Um, And so in forestry, we provide technical assistance through our trees program, uh, and that that technical assistance is um, geared towards uh, meeting standards that are defined within the FSC certification. And once um, those operations uh, have, have met the standards and have been found to be in compliance, and they are able to use the FSC seal. And then in our tourism industry, we, we provide technical assistance with different operations around standards that are uh, in nationally recognized um, tourism standards as well as in Rainforest Alliance's own, um, ver- sorry, not, it's not certification, but verification. So um, in addition to this, we have our RA cert, RA cert, it's called RA cert, RA certification. So we do have a unit within Rainforest Alliance that does conduct the audits for certification. Um, we are just one of many who do that, so we won't do it for all operations. In many cases, there's a, uh, a third party that's, that's conducting those audits and, and um, certifying. We have our Sustainable Value Chains Program, which is responsible for the chain of custody work. We have a climate program also that works across the sectors around education uh, related to climate change and adaptation to climate change. And we have an education department which works with um, primarily with schools around sustainability education and building in curriculum into, into the schools. And I work with the evaluation and research team, and we are responsible for managing um, the monitoring and evaluation processes within Rainforest Alliance across all of the sectors. Uh, and my, my colleague, Elizabeth Kennedy, is here in the front seat, too. She's the director of evaluation and research. And I lead the social science end of, of that work. So to, uh, to answer the question that Laura posed, what have we learned uh, in terms of communicating and, and measuring impact, I would say there's two, two big things. I mean, we've learned a lot of things, but I'll, I'll just talk about two of them right now. Um, you know, one of the big things is that context matters. Um, when, you're, when we're doing designing, monitoring, um, and evaluation tools and methods, we need to take into consideration the fact that not everybody is starting from the same place and not everybody requires the same things in order to reach that, that threshold that we would call you know, social sustainability. Um, so context matters in terms of interpreting that information and designing your tools. And it also we, we also need to be moving towards determining what that threshold is. What, do we, what does it mean to move from seeing improvements, social improvements, to actually achieving social sustainability. Um, some of you that were in this last session, they were talking about um, context-based indicators for uh, climate change. Well, I think the uh, one thing we're, we're starting to see is that we need to have something similar in, in social science, and it's not, it's not easy, <laughs> but it's, it, it is, it is going to be necessary. Um, and the second thing is that it's equally important for us to learn and communicate both the negative and the positive results. Um, you know, if we, if we really are serious about sustainability, we have to be willing not only to scale up where we succeed, but to fix problems where we fail. And to do that, we have to be transparent. Um, and we have, to, we have to be able to communicate those results, and ideally in an environment where it's, it's a learning environment. So, you know, we, we, we need to be able to fix those problems, and we may not be able to do it alone and, and understand that that's, a, that that's okay, and we have to be okay with that as a community. That I will pass it on. Thank you. Great, thank you, Jessica. So next we have Mary Jo Cook from Fair Trade. Um, 
So normally I don't use notes, but because I was told I had four to five minutes, I thought it was kind of important that I like stayed on topic, so indulge me here. Um, like others on this panel, like all of you in this room, um, we have a really ambitious agenda for making a difference in the world. And the way we summarize our vision, which we call Fair Trade for All, is that simply we want to revolutionize how businesses source, consumers buy, and farmers and workers produce in order to create true sustainability, which is not just environmental, but it's economic and social. And Fair Trade's primary focus in history has been on the social side of sustainability. In order to enable sustainable livelihoods for farmers and workers, we need an economic model of trade that enables market access and good working conditions. Farmers and workers need to have the skills and resources to manage their businesses and farm in environmentally sustainable ways. And they need organizational models that enable community and enterprise development. No farmer or worker can go it alone in this system. How do they um, pool their resources? But of course, focusing on producers is simply not enough. Um, fair trade must help businesses create more secure supply chains, manage risk, and um, be recognized and rewarded for the good that they're doing. And as you heard this morning, Sustainability in general, and fair trade is no different, has to go from being a cost or a burden to an actual investment. And that has huge implications for metrics. And then we all know that consumers want to feel good about their purchases, and they will buy sustainable products if they're available in the right brands, in the right channels, at the right price, and if the claims are credible. So no small task, but achievable. And so at the end of the day, we all have ambitious visions, and I think the question, not just for this panel, but for the whole two days, is how do we know we're on the right track and that our work is having the impact we intend? And so Fairtrade um, USA, in partnership with the SVT Group and funded by the Skoll Foundation, recently started a project to say, how do we step back and define, measure, and communicate impact? And we're in the very early stages, but one thing is clear is what is the right data? We have lots of data, but what's the right data? How much should be quantitative versus qualitative? How, should, how much should be systematic and collected everywhere, and how much should be more anecdotal? And these are some of the questions we're dealing with. But in terms of some of the learnings, you know, it's just a starting point. On the farmer and worker side, we have over 50 points of data just from the audit and certification process. Is all that relevant? Should our standards even be forcing the capture of all that data? Um, one piece of data that we really do track and measure carefully is what's called community development premiums. This is additional money earned by farmers and workers that they choose how to invest. Should they invest to improve quality and productivity? Should they invest in environmental outcomes? Should they invest in improving the lives of their community? community? So for perspective, in 2012, farmers and workers earned about $40 million in additional premiums, and that's all available on our website. But it's also a very narrow definition of the change that Fairtrade is trying to make. We have qualitative data like producer profiles where you can find out information about the producers and quotes on why they care about Fairtrade. And then we have the place in between, just like um, Jessica talked this morning, where when we're bringing new farmers into the system or when we're doing grant-funded work like with USAID, we put impact collection in place, but just for those cases, and does that need to be brought? And of course, farmers and workers isn't enough. So on the business side, today we measure the number of products, the number of business partners, we look at the stories people are telling in their CSR reports, the kind of press people are, giving, are, are getting, and that is totally inadequate if sustainability is going to go from a feel-good thing to an impact to your bottom line. And so really thinking about what is needed to make the business case for sustainability is an important part of the work that we're undertaking. On the consumer side, um, we look at awareness and claims purchase. So among the 20% of the U.S. who are low-house lifestyles of health and sustainability, about 60% recognize fair trade, about half of them purchase. When you go more broad, it's about 38% of the population that recognizes fair trade. But as Jason spoke this morning, these claimed purchase information are simply not sufficient if we're going to really look at how do you change purchasing behavior, not just for fair trade, but towards sustainability in general over time. We also look at qualitative, what are consumers saying on Facebook, what are they posting on Pinterest, and we look at reach. 
So when we do activities like public relations campaigns or things like that, how many people are we, are, are we getting to? And Laura told me it was okay to take one minute out and show you an example of a public service announcement that we're running, mostly because we spent so much of today talking about data and numbers. So this will bring to life some of the things we do to generate that reach. The very first thing you taught me was to be fair. No cutting in line. Play by the rules. Play by the rules. Don't pick on the little kids. It's important. It's the right thing to do. It helps create the world we want to live in. Well, there's something I need to tell you. Kids aren't the only ones that should be fair. Mommies and daddies should be that way too. Every time you go to the store, you have a chance to be fair. To do the right thing. To make a difference in someone else's life. It's easy. It's not expensive. And it makes a huge difference. Just look for the Fair Trade certified label on products in the grocery store. It means that farmers are getting a fair deal. That their kids get to stay in school. That they can look forward to a brighter future. And we're getting great products that were grown with care. Now that's fair. It's good for our family. It's good for our neighborhood. It's good for the whole world. Buy fair, be fair. Visit BeFair.org to learn more. I'm glad we had this talk. So just a little PSA break in your afternoon. Um, and at the end of the day, the biggest thing for me right now is we all have data. But how does everyone in this room, not just the people on the panel, collaborate to create more cost-effective ways of defining, capturing, communicating, and learning from the impact that we're trying to have? Great. Thank you, Mary Jo. So we're going to move on now to uh, Etienne from FSC. Hello. So I'm Etienne, the Chief Marketing Officer with FSC US. And uh, like Mary Jo, I was in the for-profit world before I was in uh, this non-profit world. And so using some of the lessons from the for-profit world, managing brands, and applying that to help and grow and manage the FSC brand. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was a little bit about the FSC. For those who maybe um, aren't familiar, it's a very brief overview. Uh, but why should things like this matter? So this is a certified FSC forest. It's managed responsibly by Finch Paper in upstate New York, not far from here relatively speaking. Uh, well, we are a forest species originally. Uh, we come from the forest, and we rely on forests for clean water to drink and the air that we breathe. Um, and forests, of course, do bigger jobs too. They're regulating our planet's climate, air, soils, water, and providing important homes to wildlife. Around the world, forests support 1.6 billion people and provide habitat to 80% of the world's terrestrial biodiversity. 80% in the forest. Um, they also, as we all know, provide a continuous supply, hopefully, fingers crossed, continuous supply of fiber and products, not fingers crossed, FSC crossed, right, uh, if they're responsibly managed. Um, and the global trade is, is over $4 billion. So, uh, you know, a couple of reasons why images like that and forests like that are important to us. Uh, an example, the Cedar River Watershed, which is FSC certified, provides clean drinking water to 1.4 million people. It's 100 million gallons a day without filtration. Uh, and, uh, it's my water. Huh? It's my water. Yes, thank you for your water. <laughs> um, the sustainability manager, REI, says they love FSC because you can actually hike in an FSC certified forest after harvest. Uh, so, uh, a little bit about why, why these forest matter. And then I'm sure you've all seen the images of burning peatlands and terrible deforestation in faraway places like Indonesia, and those are true and sad that they happen, uh, but we don't often speak about what's still happening in the U.S. in terms of the deforestation and the level and scale of deforestation in the U.S. So what you see on this slide is legal. This is completely legal, and it's in the U.S., it's in Washington State. And you see, obviously, a landslide has occurred, too, after a pretty intense harvest um, where there was nothing holding the soil together there. Uh, so FSC really isn't just a compliance mark. Some people think of it as, you know, a, a step towards legality. I'm making sure I don't have blood wood in my supply, you know, and who could be sure of what's going on overseas? It really isn't just about uh, uh, international supply chain. It's about supply chains within the U.S., too. Um, 30 million acres of forest are lost every year. I understand that's 36 U.S. football fields, not U.K. soccer fields, every minute. 36 football fields every minute, gone. Uh, and deforestation is responsible for 18% of, of all greenhouse gas emissions. 
18% of all our greenhouse gas emissions. That's more than the entire transportation sector put together, planes, trains, automobiles. Um, and how does that relate to us here in the U.S.? Well, actually, the southeastern U.S. is projected to lose 31 million acres of forest by 2040 uh, at the rate that it's going at right now. And we're losing uh, that not just to consumption, uh, but we're losing it because the land value is oftentimes more valuable if it gets turned into housing developments or into our, our retail developments. Uh, so we're losing our forest that way, too. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's not too bleak. Forestry has definitely improved in the last 20 years, but I did want to make the point that destructive forest, forestry is still occurring, and it's occurring legally within the U.S. too. So FSC is a leadership standard, much like uh, the MSC, and the goal really is market transformation. It's, again, a, another voluntary standard. And so what we're aiming to do is to push the marketplace to a higher level of environmental and social performance. And because we're a leadership standard, our very job is to push the status quo. Um, and characteristics of those high leadership standards that you should all be looking for, whatever certification and whatever category that might be in, is those high performance thresholds that are going to go well beyond legal requirements alone. You've seen one example of what legal can give you. Um, you want to see the performances verified on the ground. You don't want to just see the certification calls for programs to be in place or plans to be in place. You can file those. You need to make sure that that performance is verified on the ground. Uh, and the standards are developed by an open and diverse membership. Any one of you today could apply to be members of the FSC. In fact, go ahead, come on in. Um, and you would sit around the table, and the, and the purpose of the FSC when it first began was to bring together voices that were often divergent. And we say now that those diverse voices are what make us stronger. So we had last year on our board the representative from Kimberly Clark sitting literally right next to the very same representative from Greenpeace that led the forest campaign against Kimberly Clark six years before. And here they were, one of them now has since left, unfortunately, his term finished. But there they were on the board together collaborating. And that, you know, really was a kind of bringing to life what that diverse membership is and the fact that all voices are needed. Our governance model, too, um, has been replicated. So the MSC was formed in part on some of the same prin principles and governance model that the FSC was on. It was also replicated again for the roundtable uh, on sustainable palm oil. Um, so it's chamber balanced. It's open membership, and the members are the ones voting on the standards, and the members are the ones electing the board of directors. They are not appointed. The other thing uh, that's important to note is that we prohibit deforestation. Uh, back in 1993, at the failed Rio talks, some progressive businesses and ENGOs got together and said, okay, well, no one seems to have worked out or come up with an answer of how much deforestation is okay, because that's one of the largest problems we're facing. And that's where and how the FSC was born. Um, it, it, under some certification schemes, you can take down a forest and put in a pine plantation and still be certified as, as, as green. Um, and we don't allow that. We don't allow uh, the conversion of natural forest um, and, and that you can plant plantations on it. Uh, deforestation is obviously still a big problem. We did recently disassociate from April. Some of you may have been following that. Uh, perhaps now considered one of the worst forest managers in the world. Uh, they acknowledged conversion of more than 10,000 hectares of forest. Many believe that it's likely much more. And so, again, that goes to, as you're, as you're seeking out leadership standards amongst certification schemes, you know, we need to make those tough decisions. We make them collaboratively. That was, that was you know, made by by our, our board and according to our standards, but um, those tough decisions are, are made. Um, the other thing, uh, there's so many things that we do. We have 48 principles and criteria that, um, that are gone through at a very detailed level at, at the audit, uh, but a couple of highlights I wanted to talk about today. One of the other ones is that we protect old growth. Um, so where you have rare old growth or what we call high conservation value forests, the managers must map those, they must maintain those, they must use a precautionary approach. Um, and that requires consultation um, because uh, the, the forests um, may have uh, rare, threatened, endangered ecosystems and, uh, and also consultation for areas that are critical to basic public needs. 
We may also be looking at uh, carbon in the future being protected too in that sense. Um, FSC protects endangered species. Uh, again, going above and beyond what's required by law. Uh, we require protection of rare, threatened, and endangered species prior to harvest. And that definition of rare within the FSC is extended far beyond state and federal listings in the U.S. And it also includes species at risk of becoming threatened or endangered. Uh, this is a, another horrific visual. How many parents in the room? Okay, yeah, I've got four kids. Uh, and I worry about pesticide drift. I live in a rural area. And uh, atrazine uh, can be routinely applied to legal forests here in the US. And if it's a windy day, that atrazine can drift. It's a known endocrine disruptor. It obviously can get into our, into our water supplies too, uh, through, just the, through just the application. So uh, we restrict the use of highly hazardous uh, pesticides. And um, actually, we do that based on uh, the definition within the Pesticide Action Network. So again, a very high standard that we work from. The FSC requires stakeholder input. As I said before, if any one of you wanted to become members, you could. Um, there's public engagement on public and private lands. Uh, we don't just say because you own it privately, you can do what you want. You have to. Uh, you have to have engagement uh, with your local community. Um, you have to be able to share a summary of your management plan with the public. Um, so we're very, very transparent in what we do and how, how we work. Some facts here um, in terms of our acreage around the world and then how that translates into the U.S. and Canada. Also, the companies that we're working with. I did have a slide of logos, but I took it out for time. Uh, but it's everyone from Home Depot, uh, HP, Office Depot, some, some really well-known uh, leading companies are, 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 pref are preferring FSC now. Um, and approximately 30% of the managed forests in the world are FSC certified. Um, now, that's a tricky one. You'll also hear someone say only 10% of the world's forests are certified. That's because many forests are protected and they're not productive working forests. Um, so last thing was what can you guys do because, of course, I'd love to be able to pitch you and ask you to do something um, as a result of having listened to us today. Uh, please do specify FSC Wood. Uh, you get a lead credit for it, too, if you're in construction. Um, and look, too, at your preference policies. I, I would point you to Office Depot's most recent Shades of Green preference policy that they published that has a wonderful tiering saying, you know, these are the objectives and these are, these are the preference schemes that we have. It's a, it's a really great example of a preference policy that you could, you could work off. Um, don't believe the hype, I would say, too, and this may go for some of the other certification schemes. There's a lot more status quo money out there commissioning research to say that what we're doing maybe isn't as effective as, uh, as we know uh, it, it is. So uh, look, too, if you're seeing a tax on FSC or indeed other certification schemes, encourage you to look at where the funding for that research is, is coming from and kind of take it, take it back that way. Um, if you are already preferring FSC and you have that within your preference policy and you're already working with us, please do help tell that story to consumers because uh, that is one of the key things to answer your question, Lara, that we're seeing is that we really need to change our approach in terms of one of the important impacts we can make is what is the impact we're making with consumers. It's the final piece of the value equation that FSC can offer to the companies that are already doing the right thing. And if we start to think through the lens of almost as if we are a for-profit and start to think through the lens of looking at sales of FSC certified products. So I used to work in the for-profit world and we'd have weekly sales meetings. Maybe at the FSC we should be looking more closely at sales of FSC certified products because the more we can do to encourage the purchase of those products, the better the effect all the way back to impacts of the forest floor. Um, so help tell our story to consumers. Uh, do please become a member. Um, and if you're in any doubt, ask for yourself. Arrange to go see and do a tour of an FSC certified forest. And if you don't know where to start with that, you can come to me and I can put you in the right place. Thanks for listening. Great, thank you. So, um, yeah, thank you everyone. So without further ado, I'm going to use my uh, sort of power as facilitator to just ask a couple questions first to the panel and then we'll, we'll open it up to, to the audience for about 10 minutes of questions. So um, I would like to just, and I'm not sure who to pose this to, so I'm just going to throw it out there and maybe one or two of you want to answer this. Um, I would like you to tell us a little bit about 
we have a lot of scrutiny now. Etienne kind of uh, alluded to it a little bit. Scrutiny of these long-standing leading certification systems that really were the pioneers um, out there. And I think all of these organizations were pioneers of certification and the idea of, of setting standards for land use practices or fishing practices in the case of MSC. Um, and there is scrutiny now about uh, the impacts and, and what directly is happening out there. And so I would like to throw it back at our panel and ask you all, what are some of the things that um, those same scrutinizing stakeholders, let's say companies and others, can do to help evolve the measurement and communication of the impacts of certification? Anyone want to take that? What can companies do to help us? Uh, Etienne, you mentioned if you're preferring FSC to tell that story to the consumer, but what else um, can we do, those of us who are scrutinizing and looking at certification now, to, to help evolve this impacts conversation? Anyone? Mary Jo? Well, as companies, you can get involved in demanding um, measurement of the impact and outcomes in your own supply chain. So, for example, one of the things we've been doing is extending certification to include not just coffee farmers organized in cooperatives, but all types of coffee farmers, which is kind of a long tangential story that I won't get into. <laughs> but one of the people who is most supportive of that is Green Mountain Coffee because they're the largest purchaser of fair trade coffee in the world. And so they're actually through either their foundation or their CSR group, that kind of group, I can't remember exactly which one, helping us fund some limited work on what is the impact of bringing these other stakeholders or these other farmers, if you will, um, into the system. And so as purchasers of certified products, you have a lot of right to both demand but also help fund because, as you pointed out this morning, you know, we're not profits um, without big budgets. I always forget the number of zeros we have in our income statement, and it's about three shorter than it should be. Um, but, but that's a place that I think you guys could really help. Great. Okay. And Carrie, you want to add something there? I, I would just add, um, I look at scrutiny as a positive thing, and I think anyone um, who is using a certification system in their business um, is absolutely entitled to scrutiny. Um, and that kind of scrutiny helps us be better organizations. Uh, that I assume, if you're using the system, would be done in a positive light um, and is welcome. Um, and I think NTN referred to this. Their scrutiny is very different from being challenged um, in in ways. There are a lot of sheep's and are um, wolves in sheep's clothing um, in this. In that, when certification programs like ours become meaningful in the market, industries do um, suddenly say. Hmm. We don't really control this. This is very important uh, in our industry now, and we don't actually have any control over it. Um, I'm preaching to the choir in, in this room, I imagine, with sustainable brand companies um, who would want to adhere um, to a very credible, very robust program, um, but a lot of companies out there get enticed by um, organizations, either industry organizations or for-profit individuals and companies that come along and say, listen, I can certify you by Thursday for 10000 you know, no problem. Um, and it sounds very tempting and sounds just as good. Um, so I would put that back again on the companies and say the companies should also really scrutinize um, any kind of certification system uh, that proposes to be equal to some of the more known credible ones. Um, and if they are Great. We'll all get to our mission faster. That's terrific. Uh, if they're not, uh, we've got a real problem. Great. Thank you. Okay. So everybody wants impacts information. No one wants to pay for it. It's very expensive. So that's one call to action. And also um, uh, interesting point about scrutiny versus challenge and, um, and uh, uh, folks out there that uh, are creating standards that may not be as credible. So along these same lines, I'm going to ask one more question before we um, open it to the audience. I want to ask you what, you know, we, we've reached what I think are tremendous numbers in some of these sectors, 15% of the world's bananas, 30% of the world's managed forests. Um, I'm not sure where we are at fisheries, but it's also a significant number, and it's hundreds of the world's fisheries, and um, fisheries are big. Um, and uh, cocoa, coffee, tea as well, very large numbers. Um, so what, what is currently missing to, to increase the uptake of standards and certification? What do you think is missing? Is it just this impacts puzzle? Or what else 
is, is missing to, to drive it beyond this 10, 20, 30 percent and really mainstream it. Consumer demand. We're not there yet on consumer demand. It's rising, um, but it's really been the industries that have led this. And consumers are now just kind of waking up to it and saying, hey, yeah, I want to see that. That's new, and we need more of that. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. It's a, you know, it's, it's commitment to sustainability, and part of that is the consumer demand. And I think it's across, I think it's, it's, a, it's everyone's responsibility, right, this commitment to sustainability. Um, you know, I the uh, I think I think a big part of what we we're missing currently is is that collaboration and commitment to also transparency. So with that commitment to sustainability comes a commitment to to learning. And um, once we can kind of move out of this competitive space and into this learning space, then there's an opportunity to really move towards this sustainability. Etienne, uh, final remark, and then we will open it to the audience right after this. So, yeah, I think it's related to what's already been said, but we certainly at the FSC are seeing a transition from companies that, you know, in days before may have come to us out of compliance are now coming to us out of inspiration. And just, you know, one case in point, one example that comes to mind, HP, for example, helped fund some work that we were doing on the ground in the southeast to increase certified forests, especially among uh, uh, smaller family forests. And we said to them at the time that this, you know, funding engagement was about to occur, we said, you know, full transparency here, you are going to be paving the way for some of your competitive set, too. This is obviously not just going to be a basket that only you get to... Uh, to access, and they said absolutely. They said we know that, and, and and we are pleased to be able to support that. And we'd love for our competitive set to be uh, using more FSC certified uh, fiber. And so I think that inspirational piece, um, in terms of the leadership uh, that we're seeing from companies, is, is key. Great. Okay. So um, I saw two hands here first. Gentleman with the glasses there. Why don't we take you, and then and then here in the front, and then we'll get to maybe one or two others. Hi, I'm Dr. Do you have a question in there? <laughs> well, my question is, Thank how you. do you go about getting that body to, from the academics and the corporate uh, leaders? So is your question, how do you get the buy-in for a centralized, harmonized standard? Okay. Um, I might just start that off because I work for the... Global Association of, of, of many, many sustainability standards, including the ones here. And actually, we used to hear that long ago, that people wanted to see one simple standard. And we're actually not hearing that so much from our, especially our corporate stakeholders now. They recognize that these sectors are incredibly different. And you can't create a standard for how to sustainably harvest wild-caught fish in the same way you harvest tea or you extract aluminum from the ground. So we're actually, and I'm just telling you the pulse of what I'm hearing out there when I talk to stakeholders around the world, um, that kind of call for, oh my gosh, please one standard, I'm not actually hearing it so much. So I don't know if anyone else wants to comment on this, but I do want to bring us back to the topic here, which is the impacts question, um, as opposed to getting onto a, a harmonization Discussion. So we might take that offline unless someone has anything very quick on this, but I do think it's a bit off topic, and I'm really happy to talk with you about that afterwards. Yeah, the only thing I would add to it is that there are places where you can look for, like, a common chassis, and there's a lot of overlap in some of these standards at the base, and then find out how to differentiate. But my job prior to this was innovation, and when you're in a space where 30% of forests are managed, which means 70% aren't, yeah. No offense. Um, you need a lot of innovation. And so I'd be careful about harmonizing too quickly. Uh, question up here in the front. 
that's uh, Jared Mellon from Printico Software. I'm closer to the print, pulp paper type industry, but I'm just curious, you mentioned a few times like getting the customers on board and to really ask for this stuff and getting the companies to turn around and, and represent what's being done to their customers. Uh, any examples in, in any of the industries of companies that are really waving that flag and doing that job well and you know putting resources toward letting their customers know what's happening? Who's doing a great job with that? Your interest sounds like it's more in paper. I have stellar examples, um, but I'll, you sound like you're more interested in that pulp and paper. So. Um, again, gosh, I, now I feel like I'm favoring, but HP, HP uh, did a huge uh, sponsorship of the Lorax movie when it came out and worked together with Scholastic. So we had Universal Studios, Scholastic, HP, and FSC all collaborating, doing you know lesson plans for fifth and sixth graders uh, on you know why sustainable forestry is important and why they should care. Um, and, and there was a, and then there was a you know a microsite and lots of lots of great things done and digital ads. And, you know it was it was good for HP. It was it was very it fit, fitted very well with their sustainability uh, goals and principles. It was great for us. It gave us exposure that we could never have had before. Um, and it was a really wonderful collaboration. So um, you send you the case study if you want. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Anyone else on that? We got lots. Carrie, did you want to add anything on that or no? Okay. Uh, more questions? I, I know we had one here, and we'll try to get to the back. Yeah, right here. Uh, Carrie, I have a question um, about sustainability in terms of uh, seafood. Some environmental groups and scientists are saying there isn't enough sustainable fish to meet the demand. And there, there are questions about some of the fisheries are being certified. So, what are you doing to prove that? I know Pew and some others said you know, Canadian sort of fish. Highly controversial because of the shark bycatch. The blue labels are not for a lot of people. You know, that's what this whole conference is about. What do you do to prove that when there's a blue label on there, that that fishery really is so is the question about the, the content behind the MSC label, or is the question about meeting, uh, meeting the intense demand for sustainable fish and increasing MSC supply? It's both. I think I've got I mean, for it, yeah. companies, a lot of them want sustainable fish because it makes their customers happy and they can get more money for it. But what if there's not enough demand? And, yep. and how are you proving that that, that label really well, and that question really goes to the heart of this topic, which is proving it is the metrics. Um, first, let me say there might be accusations that, you know, MSC tries to push fisheries through because it's commercially, you know, in demand and their commercial partners want it. We can't do that. We don't have the ability to do that. Um, so that's just a hollow accusation. Um, the, what, what the MSC does and, and other good certification programs will – set up the structure, and I didn't go into a lot of detail, but the system of checks and balances, and I wasn't one of the founders, so I can really applaud their work, um, is it's um, the system of checks and balances in appointing a team. I mean, first of all, it's an independent third-party certification body that's accredited separately by a different organization to do the work, and they have oversight. They put together a team of scientific experts, um, all of their data has to be scientifically verified as credible. They usually use fishery management data, others. All the reports are open and transparent. They have to be proactive in bringing stakeholders in. Reports have to go out for public comment and public comment period. There are objection opportunities at the, at the end. If they still don't agree, uh, yet another independent adjudicator is brought in. So the system of checks and balances to keep it scientific um, you mentioned the uh, swordfish, and it's interesting because the IUCN's leading expert uh, on shark uh, populations was on the assessment team for MSC certification. So these are lesser-known facts. Um, and it keeps it being scientific instead of emotional. Uh, there are some people, one shark is going to be too much, and they're going to be very upset about it. Um, but it looked at the shark population scientifically was the commercial Impact, commercial fishing of swordfish impacting the sustainability and health of that shark population, the scientific answer was no. And so that's the way um, that you do that. When you set a standard, as says MSC, for example, we are never going to meet both ends of the extreme. Um, industry who think, you know, we're too restrictive or um, there are NGOs, Pew, for example, wants to close the entire Antarctic to fishing. Our program isn't designed to do that. It's designed to represent global best practice 
set the bar at a certain level that will drive improvement and achievement. If it's set at 100%, no fisheries will enter uh, the program and you have a useless system. Gentleman in the back with the glasses, yeah. David Gitt from Sustainability Transitions. It's inspiring to hear the council taking an aspirational vision through the practice and grappling with all the different challenges along the way to make it successful. And also then being able to reduce evidence and impact relative cost and also relative to operations that are not. So my question is. Are there efforts on the way? I'm talking about some of the land, which is fine. Try to evaluate the larger systems concepts, whether if organizations, operations are all serving whether that would lead to dynamics of these systems, systems, in such a way that they would be producing, flourishing, producing the products and services. Oh, that's the uh, holy grail, right? Uh, yeah, who would I'll, like to take I'll, I'll that? Take yeah, Jen. Because I want my colleagues to speak. Maybe our, our livelihoods analyst there would like <laughs> to take that on. But I Jesse. will direct yeah. you, if you're interested, to on the MSC website, there's a global impact study that we just released. Um, so if you go to MSC and look for and just Google or search global impacts, and you can get a very detailed study um, on that specific of how those the impacts of are the oceans healthier. Yeah, it's the first study that MSC has put out of this type that it really looks in a scientific way at is MSC helping the world's oceans and fisheries. So, Jessica, I would like to turn that one to you in terms of the, these larger um, systemic livelihoods um, Food systems, land landscapes, that's, et cetera. That's the question, isn't it? <laughs> that's the big question. I, I mean, uh, we, I think, within every business, every certification scheme, every development program, there are limitations um, to what you can do, and so we can contribute to sustainability in in certain very clear ways. And we are right now in the process of. Um, I showed that example of the, the cocoa farmers in Indonesia of really trying to better understand what it means when we achieve the outcomes that we've set, like in, increased cocoa production, increased revenue from cocoa. What does that actually mean when you look at the larger social system? So trying to take look at things from a systems perspective. Um, and we're really in the early stages of doing that, but we know that's where we need to go. Uh, and then beyond beyond that, that just looking at the, it from a social perspective is looking at things holistically because we also understand that you cannot disconnect the environmental and the social. So instead of doing environmental impact assessment on with one hand and social science on the other, this needs to be done together. And so we're looking at ways that we can get a better understanding of how the social and economic systems affect the environmental and vice versa. So um, the answer is we... And we, we recognize this need. We're moving towards that. We're not quite there yet, but we're, we're you know, I think this is, this is where the collaboration could come in a little bit. Yeah. So we'll take one final question before we wrap up. Any final questions? Yes, right here. I'm just interested where you think the certification industry or industries are going to go in the future. And if you had, let's say, 100 billion fell onto your labs, each organization, <laughs> what would you invest in? Would be systems and processes, metrics and reporting, um, standard settings, or marketing communications? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. Check, check, check. Oh, goodness. Who wants details? Well, for us, it would be developing world. Developing world fisheries. Um, there's an access issue with small-scale, data-deficient fisheries uh, to be able to make improvements towards sustainability uh, and demonstrate that. I would say also, just speaking to standard systems in general, beyond beyond the folks that are here, that accessibility is a huge area. And scaling up to the, the world's small holders, small fisheries, small landowners, small-scale farmers, and reaching those tens of millions, which is going to take innovation and, and a lot of work. Other, other 
ideas there? So I would say, yeah, consumer demand is important, but um, I actually think showing the return on investment for business is far more important. And so I wouldn't put the money in marketing, even though my background is brand. Um, don't tell anyone in my company I said that. Um, what I would actually put it in is um, disruptive innovation in thinking about how impact standards and certification work together as a triangle. Because these things have been considered too siloed, and for very good reasons. You don't want the certifier writing the standard, and I'm not suggesting that. But at the end of the day, from a system perspective, which I totally agree with you, not just on this little farm, but in the broader system, looking at economic, environmental, and social outcomes together, you have to look at all three. What's the change you want to have? How does your standard drive that change? And how does the person checking the certifier make sure that there's a journey that you talked about setting a line in the sand that gets people in and lets them improve, but kicks them out when they get to a point where they're not doing it. So that's where I put the money, disruptively innovating how impact standards and certification work together. Anyone else want to add in how they'd spend that $100 million there? Yeah, I don't know about the percentages, but I, I, I would like to see the, I would take the, I would like to see the money used towards scaling things to a landscape level. So, you know, we're, we're, it's part of this looking at the environmental and social systems together, but how do you actually take certification and instead of certifying, right now we certify the production, how do you certify an entire landscape? Maybe how do you certify an, an entire value chain? So how do we take it and move beyond, you know, certifying the product? It's, it's not an easy question, but maybe with that investment. And how would FSC spend that money? Yeah, I think I think it would be some kind of a 50-50 split. Uh, and the first piece, you could probably guess the second piece, I'll first set this first piece. The first piece would be, uh, you know, to the point that's already been made around scaling up. So many of these certification schemes we're talking about were the pioneers. And just as we talked about with Marine Stewardship Council, there's a chain of custody that tracks, you know, the fish all the way through to the end consumer. So we, too, at the FSC have a chain of custody standard. We're just now taking that online so that it's not going to be paper-based anymore, which is hugely exciting for all of us, um, but onerous for some people within that supply chain. And so I, it's really important that we do it, though, especially as our system continues to grow, thankfully, at a phenomenal rate, that that system can continue to hold. So it's kind of a blend of your innovation. I think I would put 50% to the IT technology, innovation, and systems integrity piece of it so that we can continue to scale. And then the other 50%, I have to say it because I believe in it personally and professionally, consumers, especially mainstream consumers. You know, the people who were buying seventh generation and Burt's Bees and, you know, all those dark green people, they're there already. But, you know, the FSC logo is on the back of every single Home Depot receipt in this country. You know, we're already in the hands of mainstream consumers, all of us. And, you know, shame on us, all of us, collectively, if we can't drive those consumers to behave in a responsible way. And if we didn't put money towards that, I, I just think it behooves us to do it that way. You know, if I can just one really quick story on impacts. Very and, quick. And quick, quick. Quick, quick. <laughs> We're already over time. Market transformation. Um, I've been with MSC, you know, six years. A few years ago, some of you may remember this, give bass a pass, Chilean sea bass, taken off menus, taken off shelves, and rightly so, high illegal fishing, terrible bycatch problems and issues. So with the MSC certification, one fishery. And they say, I have control over my fishery, not the world. So one fishery steps forward, says, we want to meet it. The certifier says, no, you know, you've got all these problems. They fix them all, reduce bycatch of seabirds from tens of thousands a year to zero, put 100% observers on the boats for no illegal, got back into the markets. The next toothfish fishery saw it. Fast forward four years later, 60% of the world's Chilean sea bass, Patagonian toothfish fisheries, are meeting the world's leading standard for sustainability. That's market transformation. You try to do that through regulation. You try to do that through advocacy. You can't bring about that amount of change that fast. And we're seeing it in fisheries. We're seeing it in forestry. And it's being done through the certification programs because the certification programs give the market a conduit to make that impact. It's not us. It's you. Great. So I am actually just going to take one minute to wrap up, and then I do think these breakouts are quite short, so some of us will be sticking around for 10 minutes if you did have additional questions. But in terms of bringing us back to the topic of mainstreaming certification in order to scale up our impacts and to measure and demonstrate and communicate our impacts, some of the things that just came out, both from the questions and the discussions here, this importance of moving from improvements to actual sustainability metrics, 
about communicating the negative and the positive and how that's both important, about how for our stakeholders that use standards, how it's important to look at the credibility of a system, the transparency, the governance, and all those things. Uh, we brought up the idea of the, the wolf in, sh in sheep's clothing and, and a lot of the, the claims out there that aren't as rigorous and don't have the credibility behind them. And to be, to be scrutinizing there, um, uh, and, and that's welcome. And, and also back to impacts this um, idea of needing to also make the business case for certification and uh, and also this very interesting um, concept brought up towards the end of the questions of of really showing impacts at a systemic or a landscape level and the the difficult question of attribution um, and and how there are limitations to certification but that we are trying to get there we're going beyond case studies we're going beyond the little profiles we're going beyond just the numbers of operations and we're starting to get some of the data going beyond premiums fair trade um, really taking a leap there to, 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 to communicate um, qualitative and quantitative information beyond the premiums, even though the premiums have been quite powerful. And, um, and then our final comment, which I think was an interesting one about shame on us. We already are mainstream, and we need to uh, perhaps uh, realize the power in that, um, the, the power of, of, of some of these labels that really are on, you know, 27,000 seafood products, the back of every receipt. I live in uh, in Ontario, in Canada, and uh, the province's uh, sourced FSC, it's on the back of every single bill that comes through your mailbox. So harnessing consumers, um, both for us and for our corporate partners, as, a, as an essential element in communicating our impacts to scale up our impacts. So I will leave it there with you. And we are sticking around, so um, do come up and, and ask us any questions and, and connect with us. Thank you very much. And let's thank all of our panelists for their insights today.